Good morning, church. I see uh, Miss Kelsey laughing again. Whoa, Tim, man, what's going on there, bro? Yeah, just uh, take it easy. Uh, just said put a little bit of reverb on my voice. I'm just joking. We don't need no reverb. Please don't put any on there. Uh, Miss Kelsey was laughing because she is imagining me falling off the stage right now. Uh, that's what keeps her going. It's, she says she keeps her awake. And <laughs> You're not, not now. There she is. I know it. I know it. You know, it's good to be with you all. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Marco. My beautiful wife, Kat, that's my son, Alessio, don't get confused. Um, she's not here today. She's on a prayer retreat this weekend. Uh, I'll uh, just be going away separate to her to pray. It's better if we pray separately. Uh, I'm just kidding. But she is away with a bunch of uh, good friends of ours, ladies, pastors, wives, and people that we connect with in Texas. And she's been praying this weekend. That's why she's not here. But she does send her love, her greetings, and I'm a less of a person without her here. So... I'm just scoring as many points as I can this morning, <laughs> so I'm just going to keep going. Um, I want, there we go. If you are a guest, it's good, 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 good to have you. I know that there are some new faces here today, and we celebrate that. We are so grateful that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, you could have gone anywhere else, but God brought you here, and so we have to believe there's a divine appointment for that. We do want to uh, also just thank all the people that served so faithfully last weekend. We were away, a team of us were away, and I'll talk a little bit about that now. But everyone that served last weekend, from Ryan and Kat and the band that was up there, Kalina, the tech team, video team, everybody else that uh, does the work of the ministry here, the volunteers, kids, ministry, greeting team. I mean, there's just so many people to thank, but it just blows me away that every time, you know, people show up here on a Sunday morning and what they're actually doing is exercising their giftings faithfully. And so I just want to honor all of those who put their hands up week after week to serve faithfully in this local church. Amen. Let's give him a hand. That's good. There we go. There we go. Come on. Hallelujah. So last week Sunday, a group of us were in Roatan in Honduras. Uh, we had the opportunity to invest in a bunch of ministries that we partner with over there, friends that we've made over the years, people that we care for very deeply. And I'm not going to give you a report back today because the team that went to Roatan is going to give us a report back next week Sunday. But what I do want to do this morning is I want to touch on one thing. And that thing is that as I was preparing for today, I felt like the Lord gave me a word. He gave me a word for this church, uh, and I believe it's a word in season. And it comes from something that Jesus says at the end of the parable to the persistent widow. I don't know if you all are familiar with that parable, but essentially this lady's got an issue with an adversary of hers. We're not really sure what the issue is. But ultimately she goes and she harasses this judge to bring justice to her. Now, the judge doesn't like her. He doesn't even know her. He doesn't even honor God, the text says. But because of this widow's persistence, he ends up relenting to her request, and he honors her desires. He goes against her adversary, and she gets justice. But what interests me is what Jesus says at the end of the parable. In Luke 18, verse 8, he says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, a lot of times we can think that this is an end times statement, and it probably does affect and does apply to something of the end times, because Jesus will come back one day, and will there be faith on the earth? That's a good question. But in the context of what Jesus is saying in this parable, he's speaking about prayer, and he's speaking about persistent prayer in particular. In other words, are we the type of people that go to the Lord, put our requests before Him, and actually expect that God is going to answer our prayers? Or do we just pray without any real expectation that Jesus is going to answer what we're saying? Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was like that. Him and his wife had been waiting for many years for a child. They wanted a child. And then eventually the angel shows up to Zechariah in the temple. And he says, guess what? What you've been praying for is going to happen. You are going to have a child. And you know what he does? He's like, no ways, man. I don't believe it. 
This is after the angel shows up. And to some extent, Zechariah missed out on some of his blessing. Why? Because he couldn't share it with anyone because he was struck dumb. He couldn't speak. And while I'm not speaking in particular about prayer this morning, I believe this statement and this question that Jesus asks extends, I believe at least, to other areas of our faith too. And what I felt like the Lord was reminding me, especially coming off this amazing time in the nations with the people in Roatan and the churches in Roatan, where every single time they gather, whether we were ministering there or just being a part of their ministry, every time we gathered with those churches, there was an expectancy that Jesus was going to show up. They believed that they were going to encounter Jesus. And every time they gathered, they encountered Jesus. What's more, there was this tangible sense that not only were they going to encounter Jesus, but that Jesus was going to move in power. And that got me thinking this week as I was preparing for today, and just so you know, this has nothing to do with this morning's preach, but I'm going to get there eventually. It got me thinking that in our Western church culture, where we have access to all the creature comforts we could ever possibly want, we tend to allow our gaze or at least our focus to shift from the Savior that comes running in, riding in on the donkey to the donkey itself. Remember the triumphal entry. I'm talking about real biblical stuff here, guys. This is heavy stuff. Jesus came riding on a donkey. I wasn't just joking, but it's an analogy. So hear me out. Let me give me some liberty here. Jesus comes riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem, and we as the Western church don't look at Jesus. We look at the donkey that he's riding on. What do I mean by that? I mean that we so often focus on the temporal things. We focus on the buildings that we meet in. And we ask the questions, is that building nice enough for me? Is it going to have enough space? Is there a children's ministry? Is the seat comfortable enough for me to sit on? Is the air conditioning at the right temperature, Stephen Seacrest? <laughs> we ask all of these things about the places we go to and the monuments that we've created. Or we ask things like, is the meeting itself well-structured? Is it organized? Is it going to end on time? I've got a schedule to keep, and so these people better keep to my schedule. Or we, say, we think about things like the worship service, the singers, and we say, did they touch my heart? Was I touched today by God? Just in case you're wondering, our purpose here today is not so you can be touched by God, it's so we can touch heaven. And in doing that, he will touch us. But it's not the other way around. Or perhaps we look at the preacher, and in this case, you guys have got a lot to look at because, <laughs> sorry, you guys are blessed with me. But anyway, <laughs> we look at the preacher and we think, man, did that motivate me the way I wanted to be motivated? So was the word what I wanted to hear? Was it for me? So often we make everything about us. And when that happens, without even realizing it, those things become the standards by which we measure what God is capable of doing. You see, when those things become the thing, when those things fail to meet our standards or our expectations, then guess what? We walk out of this room today and say God wasn't in it. Because we've made it about the donkey. We haven't made it about the Savior. Of course, I'm speaking about every other church, not this church, but in general. And so let's ask the question again. So when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on this earth? Hope Rock Church, I believe that Jesus wants to remind us this morning that we, just like those people in Roatan who can gather with all sorts of expectancy, with nothing at their disposal, have to become the church that lives with a God-sized expectancy. An expectancy that's not based on the buildings, an expectancy that's not based on the people in the buildings, the gifts or the personalities in the buildings. We're going there because this guy's preaching there and I'm going there. Or this person's singing there, I'm going there. But rather that we gather for the one and only person that matters, and that is Jesus Christ. 
He is the hero. He is the point. And he is the one that without whom we can do nothing. We'll be playing church for the rest of our lives without Jesus. We need Jesus in our meetings. We need Jesus in our families. We need Jesus in our personal times. We need Jesus in our prayer times. We need Jesus in our life groups. We need Jesus in our children's ministry. We need Jesus in our hospitality team. We need Jesus everywhere. And if he's not there, what are we doing? We're doing our own stuff. We gather Sunday after Sunday in this room, not for a performance. If you came for one, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We don't gather here so we can get pepped up and have a pep talk. We don't gather for an experience. We gather to encounter a king and not just any king, the king of the universe. And if that's our heart, if we can grow in that, and it's something we have to grow into. And believe me, I'm speaking to my own heart first before I'm speaking to your heart. This is something that I have to contend for every minute of every day of my life. If we grow in that heart, I'm confident that not only will we as a church encounter Jesus, but we will see the Spirit of the Lord moving great power in our meetings. That signs, wonders, miracles will follow us. That the gifts of the Spirit will be poured out in power. That we'll start to see things that we never thought were possible. The addicted set free, marriages restored, the broken coming back to Christ. Because as good as we can make the show, there is no show that compares to that that which Jesus wants to bring to this earth. And I suppose in some sense you could say, well, this maybe translates to this series that we're in. We're talking about the gifts and being blessed with these supernatural superpowers, these grace gifts. But do we really expect that God's going to do something with these gifts that he's given us? Or do we, do we just think they're convenient gifts that make us quite popular, make us quite good, make us quite amazing? You know, if you're a leader, then perhaps it's the way we seek our own affirmation. Or are we trusting and expecting that God, through these gifts, is going to release a power in this church, in our lives, so that we can impact not just each other in this meeting, but the nations that we've been called to reach. The people out there who are lost, who are suffering, who right now need to hear the message of the gospel. Those gifts we can trust and expect that God will use in power for His purposes and His plans. Not for our own popularity, but for His glory. And so with all of that said, now we can get to the series. Amen. So Kelly said this, we are in this series called Gifted. We've got all these cool resources. She's already mentioned, please take a devotional for yourself. We did say in the beginning it was one per family. You can take as many as you want now for your whole family, as long as you're going to read them. Don't use them as doorstops, please. Uh, don't use them as scrap pieces of paper. Use them for what they were designed for, to do. But if you know somebody in the city or in your community or in your life groups or in your friendship circles that could benefit from this devotional, we're making it available to you too. We were blessed enough to be able to pass these out. So take one if you want to give it to someone. You're more than welcome to do that as well. But this entire series is about us unpacking these Romans 12 gifts. We're going to read Romans 12 again uh, a bit shortly. But what these gifts are is they represent these grace gifts that God has given to the church. It's not the only list of gifts in Scripture. We know that. There's three other lists, or there's three lists in total, amongst other gifts that are mentioned scattered throughout both the Old and New Testament. And these gifts are not meant to be exhaustive either. There are gifts that are not mentioned by name in Scripture. Paul wasn't intending to write a, you know, a consolidation of all the gifts that were available to mankind. He's using this as a framework, a launching pad. And I would encourage you as well that if you take the spiritual gifts assessment, that's what it is. It's a launching pad for you. It's not the be-all and end-all. You're not going to frame it, put it on your wall and say to your wife, oh, I'm not going to do that because I'm not a service person, so don't ask me to wash the dishes. It's really just a way for us to get to know a little bit about ourselves, how we're made, how we're wired, how God has created us before the foundation of this world for His glory and for His purposes. It also doesn't mean that if you don't have a gift today that God will never give it to you. We, we serve the God of the impossible. 
Believe me, I'm trusting that God will one day turn me into a service person for my wife. That's her love language. Gift, acts of service, right? So I'm saying, Lord, give me the gift of service. I need it to help my wife. But anyway, I love her. What we've covered so far in week one, I reminded us that because these gifts are grace gifts, they're given to us by God as a gift. We don't, we don't get these gifts because we earn them. We don't get these gifts because we deserve them. We don't get these gifts because we're the most charismatic or talented individual in this room. We get these gifts because God gave them to us. If Paul, who was probably the most, one of the most gifted preachers and writers and theologians of the New Testament would say that everything I've got was by God's grace, then we have to understand that whatever we've got is by God's grace. I pointed out in that week when I did that analogy of all the cutting utensils that I used to make all my fancy Italian food. Do you remember that cool thing? How all these gifts operate together. No one can carry the entire church. And unfortunately, we do in this day and age make an institution of the gifts. We take one gift that's highly visible, that's highly anointed, that's highly charismatic, and we set it up on a pedestal. And then we worship that gift and say, everyone's got to have that gift. The truth is, that's not the truth. The truth is, it's not the truth. That's bit of a paradox. That's the truth. <laughs> there is no one gift that needs to sit on any pedestal. All gifts are needed. All gifts are accessible. All gifts are used by God in his church for the furthering of his kingdom. Why? So that we can all remain humble. Remember Paul says this, do not become puffed up with pride. In other words, he says, look at your gifts with all sobriety. Be sober in your judgment in the gifts that God has given you because you're not special. You're not different. You are my child and I'm going to use you for my glory. In week two, Ryan looked at the gift of prophecy and reminded us that prophecy is needed. It's not gone. It didn't die off of the apostles. It's not for back then. It's for today. God speaks to us through prophetic words, through his word. But he gives people words of knowledge at times. Sometimes you'll get a prophetic word to bless somebody with. And while that might not be your core gifting or what you're strongest in, every time you preach the gospel, as Ryan said, you are preaching prophetically. Why? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so until he comes back, we are preaching a prophetic message. One that we look back on and say thank you for the cross and one that we look forward to because there is a new heaven and a new earth coming one day. In week three, Tim, I don't even know what he said. It was so confusing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Tim did a great job. What he reminded us of was how beautifully these gifts actually work together. He looked at service and mercy and how Tim's not very merciful. Truth. But how he's great at service, but Kerry's very merciful. And how together they make a stronger unit. I know for everybody that's married here today, you're probably going to say the same thing that I'm going to say right now, that I'm better off because of my wife. The strengths that she has, I don't have. The weaknesses that I have, she doesn't have. And vice versa. And so together these gifts work really, really well. And God will often pair you with somebody or put you into a community where not everybody looks like you. I know it's frustrating because if you're a leader, you want everyone to lead and just get on with it. But the reality is this, our gifts benefit one another. That's what Paul says. They're not members of our own body. These gifts are members of each other. My gift belongs to you. Your gift belongs to me. When you don't use your gift, I suffer. When I don't use my gift, you suffer. So we need to stop withholding our gifts. And last Sunday, Charlie did teaching and encouragement. And something that he said that stood out for me as I was listening to what he was saying and it's something that I want to speak to all the leaders in the room, people that have this leadership core, whether that's in a business, whether that's in the private sort of marketplace out there, or it's in the vocation of church ministry. Wherever it is, you're still a leader, right? Sometimes I would say even to the moms out there because you're leading your children. 
husbands out there, you're leading your family. Everyone, in some sense of the word, is leading somebody, right? Even if you're not a, a leader of an organization, you're leading someone. And believe me when I say this to you, somebody is following you. But Charlie said this. I almost called him Paul. That was terrible. Charlie said this. He said that before we can become teachers, we need to become learners. And I want to say this, that that is such a powerful picture because before we can become leaders, we have to learn how to follow. And who are we following? We're following Jesus. Every single leader, no matter how many people are given under your care, have to be first followers. And we must never stop being followers. We never attain the leadership goal of being the main guy. And we don't follow anyone anymore. Everyone follows us. No, we're always following someone. It's Jesus Christ. And that brings us to this morning, where we're going to look at our next gift, the gift of generosity. So can I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 12? We're going to read from verse 3. But before we do, I'd like to pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful privilege that we have together in your name, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that today as we unpack your word and as we hear about this gift of generosity, that you would release a supernatural impartation, that you'd give us a spirit of wisdom and prophecy, Lord, that we would see your word in ways we've never seen it before. Perhaps we've never heard your word. And for those who haven't, I pray that this word would be life. In fact, I pray it would be life to all of us, Lord. I pray that you'd put a God over my mouth and you'd prevent me from saying anything that I shouldn't say and that, Holy Spirit, you'd take total and full control of this meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read it together. In verse 3, Paul starts, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Three words there, grace, sober, and measure. Grace is from God, given to us. Sober judgment, not to become puffed up with pride or arrogant about the giftings we have. We're not better than anybody else. And the measure that God has given us. Every single person in this room is gifted. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We belong to each other. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes, and this is this morning's gift, in generosity. So let me start off by saying this. This particular gift is a difficult one to unpack. And I say it's difficult because while this gift, this gift of giving or this gift of generosity covers many areas in our lives, like our time, our talents, the skills that we have, and those are important, there is no denying it that this gift has a lot to do with our money. In fact, you probably put money at the top of the list because everything flows from that in terms of the structures of this world. What we have comes from the money we have. Our time is even a product of the money that we earn. And so this gift can be difficult to talk about because I don't know about you, but what I've found is in churches especially, money can be an uncomfortable topic. But it doesn't need to be. I want to say that to you this morning, it doesn't mean to, need to be. And so I do want to say this, if this is not one of your strongest gifts, perhaps you're not gifted in this, and perhaps this is not high up in your gifting, the gift of generosity, we all carry it at some point, I do want to say very clearly, even though you might think that this doesn't apply to you, or as hard as this is to hear, all of us today need to press into this message. And I say that because the fact of the matter is, every single Christ follower 
has been called to live a life of generosity. It is not for a select few people. It is for every single person who follows Jesus Christ. We are called to live our lives generously. And while it is true that there are people that are called to supernatural acts of generosity, there are people that are gifted by the Holy Spirit to do things that blow our minds when we see it happen, there are all of us together combined as the collective who are called to act out our generosity together as well, both with our time, with our talent, but also to be generous with the money that the Lord has blessed us with. The interesting thing and the good thing about generosity is it has got nothing to do with how much you have or how little you have. In fact, generosity is not a product of how wealthy you are. Generosity can happen, and you'll see today, in the most lowliest of circumstances. Generosity is not about a number that you're aiming for. It's about the heart that you give with. There are two words in this text that help us to describe this gift. The first word is the word contribute. It comes from the Greek word metadidiomi. Maria. There we go. That's the extended word in Aramaic. I'm just joking. It's not. <laughs> All the scholars in the room went, oh my gosh, where are we? And what that word means is to give. That's what it means, to give, to give. Contributions means to give. Better put, it means to share that which we have been given. We are always the beneficiaries of what we've been given. The second word that Paul uses in conjunction with this word is the word generosity. So if you're going to give, which we're all called to give, we've got to give generously. Generosity is defined as the free and liberal bestowal of wealth, possessions, or food upon others. And so what we realize when we sort of combine these words in the statement is that the gift of giving or the gift of generosity is about sharing what we have with those around us as and when the need arises. Now this is important because there's actually two ways we see this working out. One, we see a need, we meet the need. We don't sit back and say, oh, you know, the Holy Spirit didn't tell me to feed you. I know you've got no food. Oh, I'm sorry, man. God didn't say anything. I mean, you can just die. It's okay. God loves you anyway. If you don't believe me, go to the book of James. You'll understand. And so the reality is we meet needs when we are encountered by needs. That's what the church did for millennia, centuries, in fact, not millennia, maybe centuries. When they saw a need, they met the need. But then there is an occasion where we do give when the Holy Spirit tells us to give. Sometimes you won't even know the need is there, but the Holy Spirit will drop something in your spirit and say, hey, I want you to bless that person with a meal. Or I want you to pray for that person because that's generosity too. Or I want you to go and buy their kids' school shoes. Or I want you to go and do this. Or I want you to go meet Mike Dalhauser and take Luke 12:31 and say, how can we best support the initiative that you're involved in? Sometimes the Holy Spirit will tell us to, but don't wait for him to tell you to be generous all the time because God expects us to meet the needs of the people who are in need. And I want to reiterate and stress this. If giving or the gift of generosity is not something that you carry naturally or you're not strongest in, because every single person as a Christ follower is called to be generous, it's a gift that all of us should want to grow in. Let me say that again. We should all want to grow in this gift. This is not for somebody else out there. I'll just stick to the leadership stuff. You do the giving stuff. This is a gift that all of us need to grow in. I'm speaking of myself too. And I say that because when we think about it, generosity started with God. Generosity came from Him. And if we have Christ living in us, Christ in me is the hope of glory, and we are becoming more Christ-like, transformed daily, being sanctified from one degree of glory to the next to become more like Jesus Christ, then we should want to become as generous as God is. Generosity is evident all around us. It's evident in the way that God deals with His creation. 
If God was not a generous God, believe me, this creation would have been destroyed by now already. It's evident every time we wake up in the morning and we see a glorious sunset, or we see the beautiful stars at night, or we hear the chirping birds, God has been generous in what he has given to his creation. Think about it. This tiny little planet, this blue speck planet in the middle of this cosmos that is so huge, has everything that we need for us to sustain, sustain life. If that's not generosity, I don't know what is. Take that one step further. God is generous in the way he deals with us as sinners. We don't deserve God's grace. We never earned it. It wasn't something that we accumulated over time and God said, okay, finally you're ready. No, God gave us his grace. If God wasn't generous, we'd all be dead and in hell. In fact, if it wasn't for God's generosity, our salvation, our continuous sanctification, and the Holy Spirit would not be available to us today. But because he's a generous God, he gives it to us liberally. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Corinthians. Well, maybe not. We'll jump around maybe a little bit. But in, verse, in chapter 8 of verse 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, he became poor. There's no denying it that Jesus, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, were of all people the richest people in all of creation. The Bible tells us that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I want to take it even one step further. Let me, further, let me tell you, every single square inch of this entire cosmos belongs to God. Jesus came from a beautiful place of abundant wealth. And he left that place to come to this earth just so that he can become desperately poor. He became so poor that he was born in a stable. There was no room in the end for his head. He had no home to call his own. And then, right at the end, what little he did have on this earth, he went to the cross so that you and I could have the penalty of our sins paid for. Again, if that's not generosity, I don't know what is. The text goes on to say, and Paul says this, he says, for your sake he became poor. And then he adds this in. By his poverty, that by his poverty, we might become rich. Now you might be wondering, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we've become rich? Well, some may tell you that this statement confirms that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross so we could all be rich. So we could all be financially millionaires, if not billionaires, because that's what God wants for us. I don't believe that that's true. And I'll tell you this. Right now, I have met amazing men and women of Christ, followers of God, that are not rich. In fact, some of them struggle to find food every single day. I don't believe Jesus was promising us automatic entrance into a financially wealthy life. Nor do I believe that Jesus was promising us access to a prosperity cult. I believe something else, and I'll get to that now. Some other people might say, well, maybe it wasn't money that Jesus was talking about. Maybe he was talking about being spiritually rich. He wants to bless us with all of the spiritual fruit of the Spirit. And while I think that's probably a better handling of the word, the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in fact, this entire section of the Bible, Paul is dealing with money. He's not dealing with the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, he's talking to the church about being generous in their giving to the Jerusalem church who were suffering at that point in time. He wasn't saying, please pray for them. Please send them little notes and text messages saying, I know you can't eat tonight, but we love you. He was saying, send them your money. They need to survive. They can't live. They're suffering right now. They need the thing that you promised them that you would give. They need you to complete what you said you would do. So he is talking about money. And so what does it mean? 
Well, I believe the answer lies somewhere between these two extremes. You see, I believe, first of all, that our wealth as believers comes from the riches of God's grace. Our greatest gift is salvation. And let me tell you something. You can be the richest person, the most wealthiest human being on the face of this earth. Elon Musk, who's a fellow South African because he's a genius, right? Most South Africans are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can be Elon Musk, but in the absence of a savior, you are the poorest of all. Equally, you can be living in a slum, but have Jesus Christ as your Lord and be the richest of all. And so I believe it starts with God's grace. But then I really do believe, and I, I think that there is a reality to this, that God does supply the needs that we have to fulfill His calling. And so if God's called you on an extravagant mission, and He's going to require it to, it's going to require huge amounts of wealth, then God will give you the wealth to do that. But if He hasn't called you for that, I don't think He's going to give it to you. And so it depends on what we're called to do. God will always fund His own projects. God will always provide for his church. Thirdly, I believe that for most people, there is a reality to the fact that there is a steadily ever-increasing level of prosperity in our lives as believers, not just monetary, but spiritually too. You see, as we grow up from infanthood of our faith to mature Christianity, the revelation of Jesus grows, and so in a sense we become richer. But then the reality is that for a lot of people, as they develop through their faith and through their journey, their material state becomes better and better over time. But I do want to say this to you, that that is not a guarantee. It's not a law. In fact, if you don't believe me, just go ask Job. Because sometimes God does come and say, well, let me take back everything that you have. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I know it happens when God wants it to happen. So I'm not promising this to everyone. But generally speaking, we see that there is an ever-increasing level of material and spiritual prosperity. And lastly, I think this is a certainty. The certainty is that we all, every single one of us, who have made the decision to follow Jesus Christ today, will be rich in the new heaven and in the new earth. The point that Paul wants us to understand is that Jesus' poverty on the cross brings us as believers an abundance of wealth in many areas of our lives. All types of wealth. But specifically, we are called to live with eternity in view. Kelly read the scripture earlier, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. There's that word, contributes, give, metadidio. That God gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever should believe in him will not perish but have. That's not what my translation says. Mine says I'll have a bigger house, a bigger car. I'll have more businesses or whatever it is. I'm just kidding. That we will have eternal life. And that invitation, by the way, is open to every single person that's here this morning. That gift of God's grace is accessible to us today. It's not a product of works. It's not about what you do. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. Not as a result of what we can do, because otherwise we would boast. But it's a gift from God. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. No matter, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how bad you think you may have been, no matter how much you've messed up, Jesus Christ is telling you this morning that the gift of His grace and His salvation and His generosity is available to everyone. And so if Jesus gave us the greatest gift, which is salvation, at the greatest cost, leaving heaven for earth and dying on a cross to the most undeserving of all people, us, me, as a sinner, then surely we should be prepared to do the same. Which brings us to our next point. If God is generous, then so should we be generous. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you jump there now in verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for what? For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There's two words that Paul mentions in this text that are very important for us to understand. He mentions bread and he mentions seed. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or even a farmer at that to know that if you go and buy a loaf of bread today at the HEB and you plant it in your garden, it's not going to produce more bread, right? <laughs> I mean, you can try it if you really want to, but bread does not produce bread. Bread is there to sustain us. And what Paul is telling us is the God that we serve, the generous God that we serve, will always make sure that we have what we need to survive, that our Daily needs will be looked after, that he will provide for us so we can look after ourselves, we can look after the people that have been entrusted to our care. But then he gives us something else. He gives us seed. Notice, it comes as a package deal. Again, there is no quantity mentioned. He says, for everybody that earns over $150,000 a year, I will give you bread and seed. No, he says everybody gets bread and seed. Whether you are living in a slum in Africa or whether you're living in a mansion on Lake Travis, God has given you both bread and he's given you both seed. You know what we like to do? We like to eat the bread, and then what we do is we eat the seed. Eating seeds is not good for you. I know some of you eat seeds. Okay, so no offense here. But let me tell you, those seeds are nasty things. One day, I'm going to tell you a funny story. You know baseball? These guys that chew seeds all the time. I thought, because I'm from South Africa, we don't eat seeds. I thought you just put all these seeds in your mouth, you chew it, and you swallow it. I almost died. I was chewing these sunflower seeds. I'm like, this is the worst thing I've ever done in my life. I've got splinters in my mouth. I've got stuff stuck in my teeth. They're like, no, you've got to spit it out. I go, what's the point? Gosh, maybe we're just simple there. But man, you've got to crack it and move it to the one side and eat the tiny seeds. I'm like, dude, just give me some biltong, which is jerky for if you don't understand. Okay. Anyway, we love doing that. We love eating the seed and eating the bread. But that's not what God wants. Because guess what he says here in verse 11? You will be enriched. Once you sow your seed, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. See, this is where the prosperity gospel has got it wrong. We think that when we sow our seeds, we're going to become rich. Hallelujah, man. I sent it out there. I'm expecting a triple seed return. Hallelujah. You know, 100,000% return because I put that out there. It's coming back to me. No, 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 no. That's not what this text says. It says you will be enriched in every way to be what? To be generous in every way. The seed that we sow comes back to us and we sow it again. God is calling us to be generous, which through us will produce what? Thanksgiving to God. Paul's telling the Corinthian church that when you send this money to these people that are desperately dying for their faith, right now suffering, they will go and glorify God. Which means when we give, who gets the glory? God. The Bible says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When we give, we remind people that what has been given to me by God, I'm giving to you because God told me to give it to you. And so if you want to thank anyone, you thank Jesus. It will save more people than you can imagine. This promise is so beautiful. We are going to get both bread and seed. Every single one of us in this room, no matter how desperate your financial situation may be, I want you to understand one thing. You have been given seed. And while some of us will have the gift to grow our wealth and give in supernatural ways, what we notice is that Paul is commending the entire church to do this. He didn't say, hey, to all of those uh, CEOs out there, can you remain behind because we need to do a supernatural offering here and give to people. No, he's saying to the church. This is what he says in a chapter earlier in verse 7. 
He's speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, but as you excel in everything. Now, this church could be a little bit weird. We know that. Just read 1 Corinthians. But they also were pretty good at some things. He says, in faith, they were a faithful church. In speech, they could have great communicators. They could express God's word. In knowledge, their understanding of scripture was, so, was strong. He says this, even though you do those things well, in all earnestness and in, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This act of grace he's talking about is generosity. Not one person, not certain people in the church. He's speaking to the church. Now, I do want to say this. Often, when speaking about money or generosity, the church will tell its congregants and its members, hey, you need to be more generous. 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 But churches have, called, have been called themselves to be generous too. Your generosity is not so we can get bigger buildings and build bigger mansions and do whatever other stuff people do. The generosity has to flow from the church too. Churches need to become more generous. One of the words that's been spoken over this church over and over again, in fact, it was spoken over this church this week by somebody I met for the first time. He said to me that your church is going to be a base church, like the church in Antioch, like the church in Ephesus. And if you don't know what a base church is, it's a church that resources the nations. Man, my desire for this local church is we would be sending more than we are receiving. That we would have a greater sending capacity than seating capacity. That we would resource churches who are desperately in need. I want to be sending to the Jerusalem church. And so it's not just on you, it's on churches in general. We need to become more generous with the things that God has given us. Now you might be thinking, okay, but this is hard for me. This is a tough area in my life. I struggle with this. Okay, it's fine. I mean, some of us struggle with this. It's, it's, not a, it's not a surprise to God. Believe me, He knows our hearts and He can change our hearts. But if we want to learn how to become better givers, we have to go to the people that are the most generous and say, what do they do that we aren't doing? And one of the characteristics that have been found is that generous people limit their standard of living so that they can increase their standard of giving. Put that statement another way. We need to, as Christ followers, become better at prioritizing our needs over our wants. And I say that because what's left over is what we're going to sow. And so if we prioritize our needs better, we'll have more room for generosity. And there is no condemnation for us that are those in Christ. Let me say this up front. And so this is not an attack on any single human being or on any one of us. I'm speaking to my own heart here. This is what I need to start doing so that I can let God use my seed to benefit more people for the king and the kingdom. That's the heart behind this message. Last point. Generosity doesn't always look like we expect it to look. Luke chapter 21 verse 1 to 4. It's a beautiful parable. It's actually not a parable. It's actually an event that actually happens. It says this, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. I mean, right off the bat, let me tell you something quite interesting. Of all the things that Jesus could have been doing in the temple, like praying, maybe reading from another scroll, maybe prophesying, what was he doing? He was watching the money box. Not because Jesus wants your money but because Jesus understands that whatever sits at the highest point in our hearts, on the throne of our hearts, is what we will worship. That's why the Bible says you cannot worship two masters. Speaking in the context of the riches of the world. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus is watching the offering box because that's often an indicator of our hearts. Where we put our money is, is what we worship, right? And that's different things. And so here's the reality. He sees this small Widow, come in. Maybe she's not small. It doesn't say she's small, but he puts in two small copper coins. And he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. 
this passage tells us that generosity doesn't always think like we, th it, like we think it should look. It's not always about building another university. It's not about building another school. It's not about getting, you know, your plaque put on a big, you know, hospital building, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes generosity happens in the most unexpected ways. It tells us two interesting things about generosity. The first thing it tells us is that none of us need to be wealthy to be generous. Let me say that again. None of us need to be wealthy to be generous. Just go ask Mother Teresa that. In fact, this time that we spent in Rotan as a team, we saw that all around us. People that have nothing were so generous. We have this wrong misconception in our mind that people that are rich have to be generous. Let me tell you, sometimes I've seen poor people being more generous than anybody else I've ever seen in my life. The second thing it tells us is that at times our generosity will be sacrificial. If it wasn't, then this lady would have put in one coin. She had two coins. There was no need for her to put both of them in. But she put both of them in, which tells me this is a sacrificial act of giving. Something that's going to stretch her. In fact, some people say that true sacrificial giving is not about what you gave, but what do you have left after you've given. Now here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God has called all of you to lay down all of your possessions at the feet of the apostles and just figure, out, figure the rest out. And in fact, let me tell you this. If anybody ever tells you that God told them that they're going to tell you that you have to give them everything that you've got, you just run away from that person very fast. Please. But the Holy Spirit drives this type of giving. Sacrificial giving is driven by God. He comes to us. He shows up. He says, I want you to take that little bit that you've got left and I want you to sow it just like he did with Elijah and the widow. All she had was enough bread and flour and oil for her and her son. But the Lord says, no, I want you to feed the prophet. Feed the prophet with what you've got. Give him your flour and oil. And then what happens? God multiplies. You see, seed and bread are always promised. And even if you give sacrificially, God will always provide more bread and he'll provide you with more seed. But that's got to be driven by the Holy Spirit. That's not something I believe any man can tell you to do or any woman for that matter. I want to close just on this point with a testimony about how giving can sometimes, or generosity, can sometimes come from the most unlikeliest places. The story I'm about to tell you is a story of generosity in action. We all know that we go to Rotan very often, and over the years we built this very key strategic relationship under the guidance of Travis and Tish, who lead our church there, who help us with many people in the island. And all the ministries we work in are equally important to us. So please don't get me wrong, I'm using this particular example just because what the Lord laid on my heart to use. But I want to introduce you to a person. Her name is Crystal. That's Miss Crystal right there. Now let me tell you, she's a force to be reckoned with. When she shows up in the room, you'll know she's around. She is powerful, man. This lady is powerful, filled with the Spirit. Man, I can't even tell you, I wish I had a, you know, like, you know, when Elisha asks Elijah if he can have, you know, some of his anointing or double anointing. This is the kind of person I want to have an anointing like. I met her three years ago. The first time I met her, she was in rehab, her and her then-to-be husband, James. She had been addicted to crack cocaine for decades, almost 30 years. She had been living on the streets. She had been doing all sorts of things that people do on the streets to get money for cocaine, stuff that nobody should ever have to do. Now, before you get the wrong impression, I know some of you might be thinking of Rotan, or oh, you guys go there, you have a beach vacation, it's the Caribbean, it's so cool. Let me tell you, you strip away the veneer of the tourist locations, you strip away all the veneer of the expat locations, Rotan is an island gripped with poverty. And I'm talking about earth-shattering poverty. An addiction like you cannot believe. There are more drugs in Rotan than you can even imagine. So when I said Crystal was living on the street, she was literally living on the street in effluent, bathing in effluent, eating the food that other people threw away. So this is not just, oh, she was just chilling out there on the beach under 
big pine apple tree or no, they're not trees, a coconut tree. She was living in abject poverty. Eventually, after getting saved in rehab, she spent uh, a, a number of months in rehab. She gets saved. She meets the Lord Jesus Christ. Then she meets her husband. They get married and they graduate and she leaves. And they go back to their home and it's in a place called Mud Hole. That's where they live. It's called Mud Hole. It's the town. Now, before you think of homes in your mind, I want you to picture this. A square block, cinder block building with no running water, dirt on the floor, no electricity, and no toilet. That was their home. That's all they had. And when they got home, she realized that all around them were these little kids that were eating out of the garbage dump. Literally, they live probably two blocks away from the island garbage dump, the landfill. There were all these children that were dirty, they had no clothes on, they couldn't eat food, they didn't have any food to eat, and her heart started to break and started to say, Lord, this is not how you want your children to live. And so with nothing, she said, Lord, I'm going to help these kids. I want to feed these kids. I want to teach them that they can have self-dignity, that actually there are people in this world who see them. They're not invisible anymore. And so she went on her knees to the Lord and she said, Lord, you've given me this desire and so you need to provide for me. And she started meeting with these kids. That next picture there is her meeting with the first group of kids in her backyard. Now, let me tell you something. That backyard looks dry right now, but when it rains, it floods. It becomes a swamp. And let me tell you, there's all sorts of nasty things in that swamp. But she faithfully got under that palm tree, under that coconut tree, and she started to meet with these 15 to 20 kids. She fed them once a week with food she never even had. She started to clothe them with clothing she never had. She started to wash them. Some of these kids had never bathed in their entire lives. Most of them didn't even know what a toothbrush was. She started to give them dignity and self-respect back. And here's the most important thing. She started to teach them God's word. Day in and day out. Sowing into these children's life. With nothing that she had. Sowing into these poor little children. Every day she'd get on her knees and say, Lord, we need more space. Lord, I need to do more. Lord, I need more kids. Three years later, this is what Crystal's ministry looks like. Through the generosity of this local church. This local church has built 70% of that building. There are 70 kids in the program. Every single child comes fully clothed. Every single child comes bathed. Every single child gets fed. Not once a week, six days out of the seven. The only day she doesn't do this is Sundays because she goes to church. And every day she feeds them with God's word. I want to tell you something about these kids. They can recite entire chapters of the Bible from memory. And they understand one thing. Their provider is not crystal. Because she teaches them that the bread of life, the very sustenance that they need to survive, has to be embedded in their hearts. These kids have a future. They have a destiny. Some of them are going to school now. Some of them are leaving Crystal and going on to do amazing things. Some of them are gifted musicians. And you want to know what generosity looks like? It looks like eight little foster kids in this house who have been treated terribly, gone through the worst abuse you can possibly imagine, dancing and praising Jesus every moment of every day with the little that they have because he is enough. But when we see needs, friends, we meet them. In Matthew 25, and I'm going to close before we have communion. There's such a powerful representation. It's the end of days, right? And Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. 
The unbelievers from the believers. The believers are set up to go into the new heaven and the new earth. That's been set up before the foundation of this world. And Jesus says something to the believers. He says, because you fed me when I had no food. Because you looked after me when I had nothing. Because you took care of me. I'm going to allow you entrance into this kingdom. And the righteous people turn around and say to Jesus, but Lord, when did we feed you? When did we help you? We didn't even know you personally. How can you say all that? He said, when you did this for the least of these, you did it for me. Generosity births in us something where we can take the gospel and make it tangible to someone. It's not the solution. Jesus is the solution. But sometimes our generosity is the vehicle that God uses. And for those of you in this church who have been called to supernatural acts of generosity, I honor you. But for the rest of us, we need to grow in this discipline. Not just today, but every single day of our lives. Because you have no idea what's on the other end of your generosity. It could be somebody's salvation. Can ask us to stand. I want to just pray and then we're going to have some communion. We've chosen to break bread this morning because this simple act of communion is not a liturgical thing. We don't do this out of religious obligation. Jesus never wanted us to turn this into a religion. He was saying, every time you gather, break bread in remembrance of what I've done on the cross. And so this morning, as we're talking about generosity, I want us to remember first and foremost the generosity of Jesus Christ. And so as you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, we remember his broken body that was given to us on the cross, who bore the penalty of our sins. And then as we you know, drink of the, of, the, of the cup and the blood, which is juice, don't be scared, we remember his blood that washed us clean, sanctified us, the Bible says. I want to... Just say this, if you are here this morning and you have never made a decision to follow Christ, but you want to accept something of this generous gift, while everyone else breaks and goes to get their communion, you can go back to your seats and pray in groups, pray for each other, stand alone, get on your knees, lie on the floor, whatever you want to do. Just thank the Lord for His generosity first. But if you have never made a decision to follow Christ, I want to open that invitation up. You can come up to the front. I'll be standing right here, along with Mark. And you can just say, hey, man, I, I just want you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you gladly. And I want to just encourage you with this. One of the things that we stop doing so quickly as we, be, as we become more churched is we stop responding out of a heart of unashamedness. I want to tell you there is no shame for anybody that comes and walks up to this front. There is no shame for anybody that asks for prayer today. In fact, let me tell you, every time we're doing a prayer call, I think everybody should be going to go pray. Why? Because if you don't have something to pray for yourself, who are you praying for? Get somebody to stand with you and pray and say, pray, let's pray together for this person I know. We need to start becoming mobilized in our faith. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you right now for your abundant generosity that was poured out on us at the cross that our sins have been paid for, they have been atoned for, there is nothing we can add to it, nothing we can remove from it, it's what you've done, Jesus, and for that we say thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that in this moment, as we celebrate the broken body of Jesus Christ and his blood poured out for our sins, I pray that you would inhabit us, Lord, that you would move amongst us, that you would stir our hearts to greater acts of generosity in our own lives wherever it is and for whoever it is. Open our eyes to see the need, Lord, that you want us to meet. Use our hands. Use our feet, Lord. Use our pocketbooks. Use everything that we have at our disposal, our time, our talents, Lord, to fulfill the mission and the mandate that's on this world, and that is to know you, Lord, and to make you known. 
And for anyone here that is undecided this morning and hasn't made the decision, I pray that you would give them boldness right now, that you would open their hearts and that you would draw them in, that they would make a decision to follow you today. And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. The communion tables are open. Please feel free to get a piece of bread. There is uh, gluten-free options there available as well. Dip it into the cup. Anyone else that needs to come up for prayer, please come see me.